Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you'll open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Today we're going to talk about work. And maybe uh, you've never heard a sermon on work before. Well, I've never preached one prior to our 8 o'clock service this morning. But as we think about our lives, the majority of us spend more time in the workplace than we do with our own families. At least most days, that's how it works, isn't it? Eight to five, eight to six, 40, 50, 60 hour work weeks. And in comparison with the amount of time we spend with our families, the amount of time we spend at church, the amount of time we spend in recreational activities, even for, for some, the amount of time we spend sleeping, the number of hours at work trumps everything else. And so it's important for us to consider what the scriptures have to say about this place that we spend most of our time, this thing that we spend so much of our time doing. What does the Bible have to say about work? Well, believe it or not, the Bible has a lot to say about work, but we're going to look today at Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9. If you turn there in your Bibles, you're going to find that this portion of scripture has the title in my bible slaves and masters and that may be what it has in in your copy of the scriptures there Uh, but i want you to understand that as we jump into this today um, we are going to be seeing this voiced in the context of slavery but i don't want you to get the wrong idea when we hear the term slavery uh, today as 21st century americans we hear it in a very different way than first century Romans would have heard it. And Paul's writing to a first century Roman context. So let me help you for a few minutes this morning to help put on your biblical glasses. Let's think about this portion of Scripture in terms of what the first century hearers would have heard rather than the way that we see uh, the awful, horrid institution of slavery that existed in our country. I'm going to read a statement from Warren Wearsby, a pastor that I read pretty much every week in pre- preparing to uh, bring the word to you guys. And Warren Wearsby said this, he said, The word servants here in Ephesians 6 undoubtedly refers to Christian slaves, but we may certainly apply these words to the Christian employee today. There were probably 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in that day, and slavery was very much an accepted institution. Nowhere in the New Testament is slavery per se attacked or condemned, although the overall thrust of the gospel is certainly against it. The gospel, this is a very important statement, the gospel is not aimed at human systems, but at human hearts. Change the hearts and you'll change the system. So when we think about slavery, we think about the awful things that happened in our country, which, by the way, are directly referenced in the book of Exodus chapter 21. Let me read this verse to you. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him, those shall be put to death. 
So what happened in our country was completely covered under Exodus chapter 21, the fact that men, evil men, took slave ships and went to the coast of Africa and kidnapped millions of Africans and brought them to this country in bondage. That is explicitly condemned by Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. But what was happening in Paul's day was very different. Most slaves in Paul's day, most, the vast majority of slaves were paid a wage. Most of them, by the time they were in their 40s, had earned their freedom. They owned their own property. They were able to work their way up. Most slaves were, were treated very well. They were all, most of them were considered to be members of the family that they served. Remember, in those days, we're not living in an industrialized society where everybody goes off to work. Most of the work that was done in the Roman Empire was done in the home. And so these servants, these slaves, were serving in the home, and they were considered to be members of the family. I'm not, that doesn't mean that there weren't injustices. That doesn't mean that there wasn't abuse. But for the most part, what was happening in Paul's day, what he's writing about here, is much more like the employer-employee relationship in our day than it was like slavery in our country a couple hundred years ago. So you've got to kind of, kind of put those biblical glasses on in order to read what Paul is saying here because he's speaking to an institution that wasn't like slavery in our country. It's much more like what's going on today in our workplaces. You see, for the Romans, the Roman aristocracy, the upper class in Roman society, viewed work, working with your hands, as demeaning. A man who had calluses in, on his hands was considered to be lower class. And the upper class Romans, the reason they had 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire was because the upper class of the Roman Empire considered any kind of work that you did with your hands. Common labor was for commoners, not for the important people. And so Paul begins to write to those who were moving the industry, those who were allowing the food on the table of the wealthy, many of these slaves had become believers in Christ. In fact, you see, in early Christianity, most Christians were lower classes because the gospel spoke to the poor, the impoverished, those that were living in bondage, those that were needing the freedom in Christ that Paul spends the book of Galatians talking about. And so Paul writes to these here. We're going to, again, talk about employer-employee relationships this morning. But a couple of things that I want you to know about work before we get into this scripture. First of all, uh, the book of Genesis gives us a good place to start in understanding these types of things. First thing you need to know is this, and I put it in bold, underlined, and italic so you know these are really important statements for us to understand before we get into Ephesians 6. Number one, work is not a result of sin's entrance into the world. What I'm saying to you is this, work is not a result of sin. There was work before sin came into the world. And if you don't believe me, look with me at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. It says that the Lord God took the man, the first man's name was Adam. Very good. All right, we got, we got Bible 101 here. That's good. The first man took that man and he put him where? In the Garden of Eden. And what did he do? To do work to work it and to keep it. That Hebrew word that's translated as work there, guess what it means? Work. No, no trick word here. It means 
work. He put the man in the garden to work it, to keep it. And he said to the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That was his pay. That was his compensation for his work, his reward for working faithfully in the garden. You can eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat of it, and God was not surprised on that day that was to come in Genesis 3, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The Hebrew there literally means, and dying you shall die. Sin and death and the law that has come into effect because man chose disobedience to God has affected everything in our world, including work. The second statement I want you to know is this, that work became painful as a result of sin. So Adam, before he sinned, had work to do, and that work was good. Remember, God said at the end of Genesis chapter 2, he looked at everything that he had made, and he said, and behold, and everything was very good. And when God says something is very good, you can be guaranteed that it's very good. But work became painful as a result of sin. Genesis chapter 3 says this, And to Adam the Lord said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. And then in verse 19 it says, And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So while work itself is not a product of sin, when sin came into the world, there was something that was attached to work. We would know it as pain, suffering, frustration, whatever it is in your job that just gets under your skin, that makes you not want to get up and go to work in the morning, whether it's that employer that just drives you nuts or that one little job that you just wish, if my job, if I didn't have to do this thing, I wouldn't mind my job so much. Whatever it is, that's what he's referencing in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. So today we're going to talk about work as worship. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning? Genesis 6, 5 through 9, the Apostle Paul writes these things into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now remember, when you read slaves here, think employees. When you read masters here, think employers. That's going to be the best way we can understand this passage and how it applies to us today. So slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's be seated. And Father, as we're seated together today, I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of this thing called work, of our jobs, of our vocations, of the places where we spend so much of our time. 
so much of our energies, the source of so many of our frustrations. Lord, would you help us to see what your word has to say? And Lord, I pray we'd be changed this morning by the power of your spirit that you give us a new attitude toward our work as a result of this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So work is worship. How can we use our nine to five to honor our Lord? When we think about in in 21st century American culture today, when we hear the word worship, the majority of us think about what happens in this place on Sunday morning for a couple of hours. When the Bible talks about worship, it refers to wait. W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T. The weight of something, that it bears weight in your life. Whatever bears weight in your life, that is what you worship. And worship is not something that we were intended to do just one day a week for a couple of hours. But worship is meant to be our entire life. In fact, you were created as a worshiping being. You will, with your life, worship something. Whether you choose to worship the God of this Bible or not, you will worship something. And for some of us in this room, our work has become our worship, rather rather than being a means for us to worship our Creator. This all comes back to the verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago. I told you we'd be coming back to this verse several times. Ephesians 5.21 gives us this command that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's going to guide us through these verses in Ephesians 6 this morning. The idea that God has called us as spirit-filled believers to live lives of submission. Now, I know again this morning that is an ugly word in this individualistic, me-centered culture where rather than submitting to others, I want to lord it over others. I want to be in command. I want to do what suits me, not what suits you. In my sinful nature, it's all about me, me, me. But here in Ephesians 5.21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We saw how last week in the relationship between parents and their children, that children are called to submit, to properly rank themselves under their parents and to honor and obey those that God has given them. And the same applies here to the employer-employee relationship. That he's calling employees, he's saying, order yourself, properly rank yourself, not just in action, but in attitude under those whom God has given you as bosses, as employers, as supervisors, as managers. He speaks first here to those who have to live, who live under authority as employees. Look with me there in verses 5 through 9, and you'll see some of the things that he has to say. Verses 5 through 8, I'm sorry. Some of the things that he has to say to these. First of all, he's talking about here, what will it look like for us to do our work in such a way that it truly honors God. How can we work well? How can we do really good work? Whatever your job may be, whether you're in the factory, on the farm, whether you're in the classroom, whatever your job is, whether you're at home, that stay-at-home mom who is working day in and day out to raise her children, 
to take care of the home, whatever it is, how can I do my work really well? Well, the first thing is this. Employees need to remember that good work is really serving Christ. Now, he he mentions this in each of these verses. You'll notice the Lord is mentioned in every verse in this section. He's wanting us to get in in our mind the context that what you do for the Lord does not just occur in your church building, does not just occur on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. What you do for the Lord is a daily exercise of your faith. And so the first thing he's saying here is that good work is really serving Christ. Look at with me there in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. In other words, employees, obey or, or properly order yourself under your employers. With fear and trembling, I notice that word fear and trembling, we kind of get the wrong idea in that translation. This is not shaking in my boots, horror type fear. This is a proper respect and honor that's shown to those who are in authority over you. He says, with a sincere heart, he's going to talk about the heart again in the next verse, as you would Christ. So what he's saying to you is this, that whatever your job is, no matter how high up the ladder you may be or how the, you may be on the lowest rung of that totem pole, whatever, whatever your job may be in your place of employment, that when you're working, you're not just working for the man. You're working for the Lord. Now that alone, we could stop there today and that would be enough for us to dwell on as we begin to consider what does it mean to to work for the Lord? Students, what does it mean when you're doing your homework? Are you really doing that for your English teacher or are you doing that for Christ? That farmers, as they're planting their fields, are are they doing that just for the harvest that's going to come at the end of the season or are they doing that for the God who gave us farms? For those who are working in the factories, are you, are you just working for the person who's next in line over you, or are you working for the one who is over all? His name is Jesus. See, it'll change the way you work if you begin to work as unto the Lord and not just as unto your supervisor. So good work is really serving Christ. Next of all, we find that in verse 6 that good work is God's will. Good work is God's will. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, you don't work by the way of eye service. In other words, don't just work hard when your supervisor's watching. Don't just watch, work hard when you're being looked at for a promotion. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. And if you're like me, many of us struggle with that temptation to be a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And the will of God in this instance is that we would work hard. I'm so thankful for so many in this congregation that are such great examples of this. I'm so thankful, I was able to tell our early service that I'm so thankful for men in their 60s and 70s and 80s and even some up into their 90s who are still out working in their farms, who are still out splitting wood, still out working with their hands, men who have calluses, men who have given their lives to hard work and have a strong work ethic. Unfortunately, the, the generation that's coming up, we don't have as strong a work ethic as some of those who are passing away these days. And the Lord says to us in this passage, work hard as unto the Lord, because this is God's will for you. 
And the reality is, folks, the best worker in every factory, the strongest worker on every farm, the best teachers in every school, the best employees in every cubicle ought to be followers of Jesus Christ. I'm glad I got an amen on that. And by the way, the best students in your middle school and in your high school ought to be Christians. Why? Because they're smarter, because they've got better skills, because they're just better people. No. Because you're working for a greater master than yourself or your immediate supervisor. We ought to be the very best, but unfortunately, what we so often hear in the workplace is, well, that guy claims to be a Christian, but man, by the way he talks about his boss, you'd never know it. Or she really claims to know Christ, but man, by the way she shows up late every day and leaves early every day, you'd never know it. You see, by our actions, we portray a testimony about the Lord that's not fitting for who He is. And rather than worshiping God through our work, we instead end up portraying a very sorry picture of who He is. Good work is God's will. And thirdly, this is the good news this morning, that good work receives God's reward. Good work receives God's reward. Look at verse 8 there. He says, and you know when you do this, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free, whether he's an employer or employee, whatever good you do, whether it's recognized or not. What he's saying is, whether you get the employee of the month sticker on on your cubicle whether whether you get your picture on that wall of fame whether you get the promotion or the pay raise whether your boss boss gives you a thank you or a good job no matter whether you receive any reward whatsoever you can know this that if you're working hard if you're serving faithfully if you're giving your all in your job even if that means you never get another dollar on the hour you never get any of those awards that are handed out this time of the year at the end of the year type awards even if you never get any of that recognition you can know this your god knows how hard you've worked and everything that you have done as you've served faithfully and worked hard before Him, will be rewarded. In fact, when Jesus talked about rewards, He said, you know what? For the Pharisees, they're getting their rewards now because people are praising them every day for what good people they are. But in reality, they're full of dead men's bones. He said, if you will go in and you'll do your things in secret, not looking for the praise of men, but looking to praise God with your life, He said, then you'll be rewarded. You'll be rewarded for those things that never receive a reward here on this earth. As long as we're looking for earthly rewards rather than heavenly rewards, so often our toil and our work is just frustrating. John Calvin said this. He said, The world sets little value on the labor of slaves. Isn't that true? For those of you that are at the lowest point on the totem pole in your workplace, There's not a lot of value set there. We value the CEOs. We value the presidents and the bosses. But he went on to say this, but God esteems them, the lowest, as highly as the duties of kings. Think about that for a moment. In his estimate, 
the outward station, in other words, the outward position, your title, your, your pay level, whatever it is, the outward position is thrown aside and each is judged according to the uprightness of his heart. What he's saying is this, that when you stand before your God one day, when you stand before your maker, when you stand before your redeemer, he is not going to look at you and say, well done, CEO. He's not going to look at you and he's going to say, well done, principal. Well done, head of the class. Well done, captain of the football team. He's not going to look at those things. What does he say? Well done, good and faithful. And here's the word. Same word that's here. Servant. And he'll put everybody in that place. No matter how high you up you were in this world, everyone will be looked at as a servant because servant is not a dirty word in God's vocabulary. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful words in God's vocabulary. Especially for those who serve in unseen places where there are no accolades. The story is... Uh, true story actually told of a missionary couple that was returning from 40 years of faithful service in the continent of Africa. And as they were coming back on, on the ship, they happened to be on the same ship returning with Teddy Roosevelt. He was returning from one uh, of his safaris in Africa, and he had all the animals that he had killed. And, and as they docked in the, in the States, and he got off the boat, and there was a huge crowd there to snap pictures and to meet him and to, and to roar in applause as he stepped off the boat. And it was just all this acclaim, and this, this couple who had served faithfully for 40 years in Africa quietly exited the ship got into a taxi, and went to their hotel. And the husband was, needless to say, just a little miffed by this. He, he said, you know, we, we, we've labored faithfully for 40 years in Africa. Our president goes over there for a few days, kills a few animals, and he comes back to roars of applause, all this reward, and we receive nothing. As they were preparing to go to bed that evening, as they were praying before the Lord, they had this very strong sense that the Lord was saying this to them. The reason that you've not yet received your reward is because you're not yet home. So that's the word there to employees this morning. But he also speaks to the employers. To those who are given authority over others. And remember in Romans 13, the Bible teaches us that in terms of authority, every authority in this world has been instituted by God Himself. There is no authority on the face of this planet, whether it's parental authority, presidential authority, there's no authority on the face of this planet that has not been put there by God. To the place that when Jesus was facing crucifixion and, Paul, and Pilate was questioning him, Jesus looked at Pilate, the man who had authority to send him to the cross, and he said this, You would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. And that's true in every statement. And Jesus was not saying that with a puffed up prideful, Oh man, you'd have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you from above. There was nothing like that. The God of the universe humbly submitted himself to a Roman governor who was going to allow him to be put on the cross, used by the hand of God to bring about the redemption of the world. 
So what does this passage say? Verse 9 in particular. What is it teaching us about the role when you find yourself in a place of authority over others, whether you're the manager, the supervisor, you're the boss, how can you respond in Christ-honoring ways in your workplace? Let's look at a few things here. First of all, Paul says to us, throw out the threats. He says, masters, stop your threatening. If you've been long in the workplace, you've experienced Bosses who exhibit their authority by constant threats. If you, don't, if you guys don't get back to work, I'm going to. If you don't do better this quarter, we're going we're gonna to dock your pay. We're going to cut your hours. We're going to do all these things. And then they exhibit their authority through constant threatening. And some of you in this room have bosses like this that you work under every day. And it's so frustrating, not only because they constantly threaten you, but because they rarely ever follow through. This is so rampant in our society. It's in our homes and it's in our workplaces. Parents who make idle threats to their kids and the kids know they're never going to follow through with that. And so they just go on doing whatever they're going to do because mom and dad never follow through on their threats of punishment. And the same thing bleeds over into the workplace. Bosses who constantly threaten their employees thinking this will get them to work harder when the reality is it's rarely the threat of punishment that makes us work hard. It's often the promise of reward that makes us work hard. See, God created us that way. God did not create us as the people who are primarily motivated by the threat of punishment. He created us as people who are even more motivated by the promise of reward. And for those of you that have employees under you, you might want to consider that. Not that there's never a place for punishment. That's not what the Bible's saying to us. But there's really not a place for us just to go around threatening others with possible punishment that we really have no intentions on following through with. It's just a way of trying to motivate them or to guilt them into doing something we want them to do. There's a better way. And so Paul says to those who have those working under them, just throw out the threats. Don't run your business that way. Secondly, to factor out favoritism. Look at the last phrase there. He's talking about the fact that we, we're going to come back to this idea that we have a master who is in heaven. But he says, and there's no partiality with him. The idea of partiality, the idea of favoritism, which the Bible speaks about in various places, both explicitly and in the narratives. You look at the story of Jacob and Esau as they grew up under their, their father Isaac and their mother Rebekah. Both of them were favorites, uh, Jacob being the favorite of his mother, Esau being the favorite of his father, and it ripped this family apart, this issue of favoritism. In the book of James, it says, don't show favoritism in your churches. Don't give the rich man a good seat and have the poor man sit on the floor. Don't show favoritism in your churches. And, and Paul's saying here, employers, don't show favoritism in your workplace. Now the reality is, because of our human nature, we all have favorites. Parents will always, you know, smart parents will look at their kids and tell them all, all each one, yeah, you're my favorite. We all have people that we tend to prefer more than others and some that just get under our skin and get on our last nerve. And what Paul is saying is here, don't allow those things to determine how you will supervise your employees. You may prefer one guy's personality. 
You, you, you may have common interests. You, you guys may spend time on the golf course together. But never allow that to determine how you're going to supervise those under you. Because when you start playing favorites, when you start showing favoritism, when you start being partial towards some over others, it begins to cause division. And many of you have seen this in the workplace. You live in a place that you work in a place daily that's characterized by favoritism at every point. You know who the boss's favorites are. I see some heads shaking. You know who the boss's favorites are, and you have to deal with this every single day. And the Bible's saying to us there's a better way to run our businesses. There's a better way to oversee our employees. What is that better way? That's the last point on your outline this morning. To remember your master. To remember your master. Let's read together verse 9 again. Masters, do the same to them. In other words, this is the golden rule of employer-employee relationships. Masters, as as you would seek for your employees to rightly order themselves under you, to honor you, and to follow your directions, he's saying just as you would have them to do that to you, golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. Do the same to them. Properly exert your authority. Stop your threatening, knowing, here it is, knowing that he who is both your master and theirs is in heaven. So employees, supervisors, managers, whatever your title might be, bosses, hear this. You have a boss who's over you. Even if you're the CEO, president of the company, you're, you're, the, you're the big cheese, so to speak, in, in your place of employment, you still have a boss who is over you, whether you recognize him daily or not. He is your God, He is your Creator, and He has become your Redeemer through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He is saying to you that as an employer, as a boss, as a supervisor, as a manager, that you would do your work and your supervision in such a way that you would be always mindful that you're a man under authority, that you are a woman under authority, and that authority is God's. Now, I know for our church, many of you find yourself in both of those places. You're middle management. You have people who are under you, and you have people who are over you. And so all of this applies to you. Some of you in this room, you're self-employed, and nobody works for you, and you work for yourself, and yet still, you can walk in obedience to this because you have a supervisor. His name is Jesus, and he calls you to do everything you do the best of your ability as an act of worship before him some of you in this room have nobody under you because you're low man on the totem pole right now and and you want to work your way up and you're in that frustrating job that it's hard to get up every day because you just you hate what you do let me give you this challenge if that's where you find yourself you're already dreading monday morning which is coming soon enough how would your job be different if you truly began to see your job as an act of worship unto the God who loves you so much that He gave His one and only Son to go to the cross for you, to purchase eternal life for you, the full inheritance of heaven for you, 
that when you push those papers or that plow, when you do whatever your job has for you to do, it's an opportunity to praise and give thanks to the God who made you and redeemed you. We'll end here this morning. Colossians 3. This sums it all up. Same context Paul was speaking about to the Colossian church. And he said, and so whatever you do, what's left out of the word whatever? Nothing. Very broad term. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing this, here's the reward once again. Knowing that you will receive from the Lord your inheritance, your reward. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how would your work and your workplace be different if you worked according to this? If worship became a daily routine for you. Not that you spend all your lunch hour in prayer and Bible study, as wonderful as that might be. Not that your, your co-workers find you uh, bowing down in your cubicle. But that you lived a life of worship unto God. Saw so every activity, every job, every responsibility as something that you could do to worship your God. So you do it to the best of your ability because He's worthy of your best. You do it with all of your energies because He's worthy of all of your energies. You do it as an act of worship. And when you do that, when that becomes the attitude of your heart in relation to your work, it really changes everything. Then that supervisor who gets on your last nerve doesn't seem like such a bad guy anymore because guess what? You're praying for him every morning before you go to work. And not just praying that God will change him and he won't be such a pain, but you'll begin to develop a relationship with that guy where you know how to pray for him specifically. You know the troubles he's having at home. You know the troubles he's having with his kids. You know maybe why he's in a bad mood because his life's a wreck. You see, begin to work as to the Lord and not to men, and you begin to see opportunities to minister for the Lord every day. Rather than somebody having to question your relationship with Christ because of your poor work ethic, they begin to look to those of us who are followers of Jesus and say, man, why does that guy work so hard? And I know some of you have been criticized for working harder than everybody else. But there comes a moment when you work unto the Lord and then people begin to ask, why does that guy work so hard? Why does she give so much? Why do they seem to actually care about this job? Because I don't. And then opportunities begin to open up for you to share about the reason for all your hard work. And to speak the name of Jesus into our lives who otherwise just think that Jesus is some dude that weird church people talk about on Sunday mornings and don't live for the rest of the week. Can we just bow our heads together for a minute?
I want you to consider the work that you will be headed into this week. For some of you, just uh, for some of us in this room, just the mere talk of of work takes you to a negative place, takes you to a place of frustration, and you're already dreading tomorrow morning when you've got to get up and go back to that place which has become detestable to you. How would that be changed if you knew that God was saying to you, I put you there and I want you to do your very best in that role this is an opportunity as much as singing a song in church or hearing my word preached this is an opportunity every day for you to worship me to honor me to obey me Believers, how would our workplaces be changed if rather than grumbling about our supervisors, we would instead begin to pray for our supervisors? Rather than talking about them behind their backs, we would instead seek to talk to them, to develop a relationship with them where we might know how to pray for them and looking for opportunities to be able to share Christ with them. In the most menial of tasks, that you're called on to do, how would it be different if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that you were doing that for Jesus? This is your Savior who one night wrapped a towel around His waist and knelt down before 12 men who did not deserve it in any way and took their dirty, stinky, smelly feet and washed them. He who was in the very nature God did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. But he took the very nature of a servant Being made in human likeness, he became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And that is the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that your proclamation in your work? Jesus is Lord. I work for him. My work is worship unto my God. And I love him so I work with all my might for the Lord and not for men, to please God, not just to please people. Lord, help us today. Change our hearts, oh God, and we work for you with a sincere heart, knowing this is your will. 
And may our work not be the thing which we worship, but may it be an act of worship unto you. As we enter into our workplaces tomorrow, may we not just talk like the light of the world, may we be the light of the world. And as they see our good work, those who are apart from you, who do not know you, God, as they see our work, may they come to praise our Father who is in heaven. And this we pray in Jesus' name.